and welcome to ContraPulse. This is Julie Valamont. This episode, I sit down with West Coast dance pianist Anita Anderson. Anita has been playing piano for Contras and English dances for decades. Long enough to have accumulated a list of weekends and week-long gigs, a number of bands and collaborations, and an immense set of music notebooks. She brings influences from gospel, blues, ragtime, Scandinavian, Cape Breton, and Quebecois music to her backup, and adds an inflection of Baroque counterpoint to her English playing. And she almost never plays a tune the same way twice. In the Contra world, you'll hear Anita with Bag of Tricks, The End Effects, and Spin with Rodney Miller. In the English country dance world, with the Tricky Brits and Roguery. She also writes tunes, the best known of which is the bus stop reel. In our interview, Anita revisits her early musical experiences learning the chord organ, where she grew up in Long Beach, California. And she talks about her first exposure to contra and English country dance in Los Angeles. We discuss the myriad musical collaborations she's involved in. And with the help of some short excerpts from contra dance pianists that she selected, we explore the many influences and styles that have led to Anita's sound. Hope you enjoy.
Well, hello, Anita Anderson, and welcome to ContraPulse. Hey, Julie. It is so great to see you. Where are you located? Are you in Seattle at the moment? I am in Seattle. I'm in Wallingford, which is a, a nice area of Seattle. Lovely. Is this your home office that we're seeing it the is. walls of? Lovely. We're all at home right now. Um, I remember, I think the first time I met you in person was at Folk Life years and years and years ago. Uh-huh. And I think there was a jam session and you were playing piano and I was just kind of hanging out and watching you. And at one point, someone asked me to get up and play and I was so terrified. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty silly <laughs> right but I was new and I mean we can all be terrified at any level of playing right but uh it was just really cool to get to see a little tiny bit of your world but we've never really gotten to spend much time together although I feel like fellow piano players always have a special bond mm-hmm. even if we've never gotten to spend time together so I'm really looking forward to chatting today and getting to hear more about your approach and your playing and how you got started and everything else sure. like that. Um, so why don't we start from the very beginning? How did you get started playing for music and how did you end up playing for dances? Well, once upon a time, I was growing up in Long Beach, which is a city south of Los Angeles. And in my there were three kids in my family and I think my dad had the idea that everybody should try an instrument at some point. And he usually relied on the schools to provide free music lessons and instruments and whatnot. Um, but I was only about seven, hadn't gotten to that point. And this was during a period when people were first starting to think about home, home organs. There never were such a thing before. There were chord organs and there were actually fancier models as well. And a local furniture store was trying to promote home organs and sell them. And they offered 10 weeks of free lessons if you would actually come into the store and then maybe buy something. So I got 10 free lessons on a very simple organ. Um, And at the end, a teacher took my dad aside and said, "Uh, this kid needs, needs more lessons. You know, I really think you should do something. So we got some sort of cheap chord organ, um, but the um, organ teacher rebelled and said, no, 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 this is not going to work. And if people don't remember chord organs from the old days, it was just like a two-octave keyboard and a bunch of buttons. Um, So you really couldn't learn to play much of anything. Anyway, he finally sprang for an actual two-manual organ with an octave of pedals. And that's what I took lessons on for the next five years. Um, and I just got bored with it. I didn't have anything to do. I didn't have any recitals or anything. So it's when I was 12, I think I said, you know, I wasn't interested in taking lessons anymore. So we quit the lessons and I continued to play just for fun. Um, but then I got into, um, vocal music in school. I was in a bunch of choirs. So that was my musical outlet for a long time. Um, and there was one exception to that. I was going to a church that had um, very simple music. And my senior year in high school, the organist retired. And people, people knew I was going off to college, but they said, just for a year, could you fill in? And we'd actually pay you, you know, a few dollars a week. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I needed money for college, so I was fine with that, and I would have been there anyway. So um, they this was an organ gig, not a piano gig. Anyway, um, the previous incumbent had been used to just opening the hymn book and playing stuff. She didn't learn anything special, but I was going to do a better job than that. So at the time, there was no internet, um, and I didn't have a whole lot of music at home. So I went off to the Central Library in Long Beach and checked out every simple-looking music book I could find and started learning simple Bach etudes and things like Mm -hmm. that, inventions, and got into... um, a practice of checking out huge amounts of music and going through them very quickly, finding something that I could learn quickly for each week. And my rules were that I would never repeat any music for the whole year. And I had a five-minute prelude, a three-minute uh, offertory, and a five-minute postlude to prepare mm-hmm. every week. Mm-hmm. And I never repeated. And boy, did I learn how to sight read. Yeah, really, exactly. Really, really fast. That is and, the way to do it. And I was also um, sort of absorbing basic Baroque counterpoint while doing all this, just because there's so much music going by. And my very last Sunday, I set myself a test that I would give myself a theme and I would improvise for five minutes in Baroque style. And it I'm sure it was a mess, but I got through it without any more music. So that was real important part of my my musical education that year. But I didn't do much with keyboards for a long time after that. Um, Again, in college, I was doing a lot of vocal music. After college, I was doing a lot of early music, choral stuff. And then I came back to LA after grad school. I was doing international dance. Oh, and I'd I'd been dancing in high school too, but it was all international. Mm. Um, And there was a a token contra, a token English dance in every evening, but it was we were not focused on that. But there was a growing contra scene in L.A. when I got back. So I was doing all that and doing some English, doing lots of Scandinavian. And at some point, uh, somebody asked me to fill in on piano for a local band. And all I knew, well, what they told me, was, uh, here's a lead sheet, you play these chords, you do boom chuck, um, that's the rules. That's what you're allowed to do. And, okay, so I did that for a while and I got really, really bored. And <laughs> so just as an example of what I was told to do, here's a clip from a piano player that we all know doing very straight, solid New England boom chuck. So that's that's the quintessential New England blocky style. It's absolutely solid. Rhythm is is consistent. Tempo never changes. McQuillan was so good at keeping a very solid tempo. He could not be moved. <laughs> yeah. So you could always depend on him. 
Anyway, it worked really well for dancing. People loved it, but I was bored. <clears throat> and um, I was actually thinking of quitting because there didn't seem to be any way around it. And then I heard a CD that came out in, I think, 86 from Rodney Miller called Airplane with Kate Barnes playing on that. And this changed everything. So maybe we could hear a clip of some of the, um, some of the music where Kate got to shine. Yes. Uh, let me pull that up. And uh, while I'm pulling that up, that was the Airplane album. I believe it was Rodney Miller, Molly Mason, Kate Barnes, Russ Berenberg, and Tim Jackson. And this is from a track called Soulmate. And you had specifically mentioned a place in the, the track that you'd like to hear that kind of showcased some of her inventiveness. So I'm going to try to fast forward it to this part kind of midway through. <clears throat> Yeah, so that convinced me, you know, if Rodney Miller, the, uh, the the absolutely perfect traditional New England fiddler could play that, then and Kate could play that, then it was allowed. <laughs> so, and that kind of expanded your horizons. It certainly did. So I started working on copying Kate Barnes in everything I could do. Um, like many of us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and so I started uh, playing a little more. I was playing with Mike Mendelssohn from Santa Barbara. Um, and then a bunch of us um, separately decided to move to Seattle right about 1990. And there were lots of opportunities when I got here, particularly playing with Rex Blazer, um, mm. who's the, one of the wild men of Contra. Um, he is one of a kind, Alaskan. Yeah, he was living in Alaska at the time, later moved to Florida. Um, he was kind of a, still is kind of a seat-of-the-pants player, likes to take big risks, uh, try things he's never tried before. He introduced me to a lot of very cool tunes that I wouldn't have heard about otherwise. He got me to go to Ashokan, which had never occurred to me to go to a place like that. Was that Northern um, Week? Excuse me? Was that Northern Week? Yeah, yeah, Northern yeah. Week. And he was up for any tour, anywhere, uh, on short notice. Um, he would fly across the country if somebody offered him, you know, two gigs in a row. So we traveled a lot as a duo and got to play a lot of cool places. Um, then he moved away. And I started playing with Bag of Tricks with Dave Bartley and Sandy Gillette. And we were doing both English and Contra. Um, and Betsy Cooper was playing with us when we did English. And so, and we actually recorded in 2002. Um, that's really the only arranged Contra album that I've been on so far. And since that point, uh, there's been lots of bands um, that come and go with the same pool of people who are about the same level and like the same kind of music. So Bag of Tricks, Tricky Brits, um, uh, end effects, and uh, one of the biggest uh, 
opportunities I've had to play is with a group called Roguery, which started out as a, a bespoke band to record English tunes. Um, um, I, sorry, at dance length, so that groups that didn't have live music could mm-hmm. have some tunes to play. And we've done six uh, CDs of those so far. Mm-hmm. So I also have to say that Bag of Tricks and Tricky Brits is one of my favorite band names of all time. Ah. Just like such a great, funny concept of having the same, essentially, band have different personas for English and contra music. Mm-hmm. Because we often feel that way. Um, who were your mentors when you were learning to play for dances? You know, you heard Bob McQuillan's playing, and that was probably like a good role model in a sense, like it kind of set the sound in your mind. But what were some of the other things you were hearing and people you were meeting and things like that? Uh, the same New England crowd that we all listened to. Um, mm-hmm. Wild Asparagus, um, Nightingale, anything Jeremiah McLean did, anything. Right? <laughs> anything. <laughs> yeah, and anything Kate Barnes did. And, of course, for English, Bare Necessities. Um, mm-hmm. But I realized very quickly that I was never going to be Jacqueline Schwab, and that was fine. Um, yeah. We, one of her is, is great, and no one else can did- match her. What? Uh, were there any particular fiddlers that you played with as you were learning? Like, I'm just curious about your process of how you learn to accompany tunes. Oh. Well, I played with fiddlers who were very busy um, in the style of Rodney Miller. A lot of bow rhythms. So mm-hmm. that that gave me a lot of room to play something else than straight rhythm. Mm. They really filled out the sound and I could play around them and underneath them. And if there were any spaces, fill it in. It's the basic counterpoint principle that when they move, I'm still, when they're still, I move. Um, So learning from from people like that um, was what I did. So it sounds like there's times when you could kind of play it straight and just provide a solid rhythm for them to play over. But then also they being strong fiddlers gave you the freedom to experiment. What are some of the kind of things you would do if you had space? Well, um, the styles that I was listening to aside from straight ahead contra dance um, were things, well, First of all, I had a gospel background from playing church music mm-hmm. and listening to blues, listening to Cape Breton stuff, listening to French Canadian stuff, um, and rags, did a lot of work with rags. So I had tricks from all of those that I could insert whenever there was a chance or whenever it was uh, stylistically appropriate with the music. I wouldn't, I wouldn't play rags when I was playing French Canadian, that sort of thing. Right. But you get these things in your fingers, and if there's a space to use them, you just uh, tuck them in and see if anybody squawks. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like that's something that all these bands that you mentioned were doing in different ways. Like like Nightingale bringing in like both Jeremiah and Keith as rhythm players brought in all these different influences from all over the place. I mean, Jeremiah has done some Cape Breton piano and 
modern things and jazz and just everything and French music and, you know, and beer and music. And then, <laughs> you know, Keith with all of his influences and also some strong Cape Breton piano influences as well. And then, you know, uh, Wild Asparagus and Percival's background on the piano, just it, and then Kate Barnes, of course, is someone who I associate with like pulling out every trick of the book at any moment mm-hmm. on any whim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, uh, do you consider yourself kind of in that school of of piano players? I'm not as bold as Kate, and I don't know <laughs> well, as many tricks. Few people are. <laughs> I mean, no one does. No, we shouldn't compare ourselves to her. <laughs> no, no. And you also play for English country dances. Yes. How does your how does your playing for English differ from your playing for contra? Well, it's more lyrical, and uh, heavy rhythm obviously is not as important. If you mm-hmm. give people a basic idea where the beats fall, where to walk, you can leave spaces, you can do a lot of sustain, and you can use your classical chops in a way that is inappropriate for contra. Mm-hmm. One thing I like to do in English, um, partly for the benefit of the dancers and partly for me, is to play along with the walkthroughs. And I have strong feelings about how to do that and what it's mm. good for. Um, you play something very simple, often just a melody line, nothing else. You leave out all the pickups. You leave out all the ornaments. You give people just a sense of the framework of the dance, how long they have to get from A to B how fast they should be walking. If it's in 3-4, you give them a sense this is a waltz. You should be thinking about that as you move around. Um, and it gives the band a chance to preview the dance and figure out how they can support it. What are mm-hmm. the tricky parts? When are people likely to, to run out of time and need a little assistance, that sort of thing. It also gives the caller a chance to adjust your tempo, which I yes. feel like, at least for me, often happens. Yes. <laughs> yeah. For our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with English dancing, um, you know, in Contra, we don't play during the walkthrough unless we do a rolling start, which is a trick that some bands will do where they start playing under the walkthrough and then the caller keeps calling and then just flows right into the dance and you never know when the dance begins and the walkthrough ends. You know, in English country dances, some musicians play kind of noodling under the walkthrough, but they'll do a little bit of the phrase. And then when the caller starts talking and stops teaching, they'll stop playing and then they'll do another more of the phrase. Some people like it. Some people don't. Some callers like it. Some callers don't. It's all about personality. But the, you know, the goal is to help the dancers get the music in their bodies, like you're saying, and help the musicians get the dance Mm -hmm. and the music synced up. And it's just... I really enjoy it. It's a really cool feeling. Yeah, and in English, there's so much variety of, of tempi and of choreography in that something like a simple figure eight could take six beats, could take 16 beats. You just never know until you start mm-hmm. the walkthrough. And mm-hmm. the dancers really know, are they going to make a huge arc or are they going to scurry as fast as they can around the person next to them? Uh, it's really important for them to know that ahead of time. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because the tune and the dance go together. And so the phrasing of the music is really important for the dancers, like you say, to know how much space they should take up. And it's like, how far do you move your body? And how slowly do you move and all these different things? 
that, uh, you know, most of the time in contra, we don't worry about those nuances. You know, a well-written dance can fit to most well-phrased tunes. Yes. And the phrasing of the tune is enough. But in English, you have a lot more diversity of, like you say, of uh, tune styles and time signatures and everything else. Mm-hmm. I've enjoyed, for me as a piano player, I kind of have loved playing for both because they each kind of scratch a different itch for me. Sure. You know, I love the variety and the subtlety of English. Now, I also love subtlety in Contra. It's not to say that Contra can't be subtle, but it is just also fun to just kind of crank it out during Contra dance. Yeah. Um, what are some of your favorite moments? In Contra? In anything. In oh, moments? Um Hitting a punctuation point in perfect synchrony uh, yeah. when the dancers are with you on that. You get a lot of crowd response at that point. People, re- people feel that, um, that the whole room is moving as a unit, including the band. That's pretty yeah. exciting. And also, if you do things like introducing blues riffs or um, little bits of Motown or something, and people change their dancing... You, you have a feeling they're actually listening to you and responding to what you're doing. That kind of connection between band and dancers is pretty exciting.
some of the moments that are like what kind of fills your heart as a musician in addition to those things um well i play in in support of the dance i'm not there to concertize if i can do stuff that makes the dance work that shows off the people in the band gives them space to do what they're good at and maybe come up with some new ideas, some new chord progressions that we haven't done before, keeping us all on our toes. Yeah. That's that's a good evening when I can do all those things. Yeah, it's really great to have that 
mindset of kind of being there to serve the dance and the dancers. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean you can't be creative, but it means that that foundation is there. The same foundation that Bob McQuillan would lay down, you know? Yes. <clears throat> and one thing I've been pretty passionate about, especially in English, but also in Contra, is watching the floor as mm -hmm. much as possible. Um, I work with people who are paper trained and will not take their eyes off the paper no matter what, even though they've played this tune 30 times and they really know how it goes. They're just trained to look at the music all the time and they never look up. And they miss punctuation points. They mix mm -hmm. pauses. They, they play over things that you wouldn't if you had been watching the floor. And as a backup player, since I'm not doing complicated melodies, I have the, the bandwidth to look up um, and yeah. see what's going on in the floor. And it gives me all kinds of ideas for fun things to do. And it gives me a constant check. Should I be adjusting the tempo? Are people having trouble getting to where they need to be? Are they bored because it's going too slowly and they're getting, thing, getting there too early? Uh, is there something fun about this dance that I can accentuate in some way? So watch the floor, watch the floor. Are there any telltale signs that you look for? Well, again, if, if, they, if their feet are off, the, if their foot is off the floor and they're waiting to put it down because they're waiting <laughs> for the next beat, that's too slow. Yeah. If they're scurrying, if they're late on the progression, um, gosh, I can think of so many dances that have a hay for four at the end and they're trying to finish the hay and move on to the next couple and they're late. Yep. That's a tune that needs to slow down. It's just uh, a consequence of the choreography. Yeah, absolutely. I often watch the long lines and if they look really ragged and uneven, you know, people aren't getting to them in time. Yeah. Things like that. Or some people are getting to them early, you know, and I, I often I try to ask myself now if they're off, is it because of phrasing or tempo? It's often tempo, but sometimes clear phrasing can help. Like really, if they have a hey that they have to get through quickly to get to like a balance after or something, you know, I try to make the phrasing really clear during the hey that something else is about to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we all have these various tricks in our arsenals, right? Mm -hmm. For dealing with things like that. Um, how do you communicate to your bandmates that you want to adjust the tempo? Do you just kind of push it a little bit or pull it back a little bit? I've had minimal success forcing them to do things uh -huh. unless it's very, very subtle, very gradual. Usually we're close enough together that I can actually say, you know, pull it back, pull it back, or, you know, we need to speed yeah. up. Um, I have a little trouble talking while playing, so I tend to talk in rhythm with the beats because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, otherwise I throw myself off. So sometimes it takes a while to get a sentence out and make sure that it's heard by whoever needs to pass it along. Yeah, uh, that's an age-old thing for every band is like that kind of communication. But I, I agree, if you want the whole band to speed up to fit the dance or slow down, it's just good to just say it. Yeah. And then everyone can try to do it together. And of course, you a know, good caller a good caller is telling you these things too. But often I look over and I see the caller is checking the cards for the next dance and yeah. isn't watching the floor. So it's up to us. 
It's true. Like sometimes that's the callers. Like we have our downtime maybe during the walkthrough, but they have their downtime during the dance. So they're often multitasking just like we are. Sure. Yeah. Um, Do you have all the tunes memorized? Like, do you know them by heart or are you kind of chording by ear or do you ever use written down chords like cheat sheets and things like that? If we have uh, established medleys, yeah, I probably know them backwards and forwards and I Mm -hmm. have ideas about transitions. Um, (laughs) Every once in a while, somebody will spring a tune on me that I have not seen, something they wrote that afternoon, and... I'll be I'll be leaning on the lead sheet pretty heavily for a while. It doesn't take very long to get the format of a tune down though and start looking for alternate chords because I'm easily bored and I like variety. Um, and fortunately, oh, one thing I did in college was take a full year of music theory. And mm-hmm. it's the just about the most valuable thing I've ever done. I wasn't a music major, but this was a fairly heavyweight course for music majors. And it gave names to things that I had had an intuition about, but I didn't know what they were called. It forced me to compose um, and, you know, with multiple lines. Um, it explained the relationships between chords, different kinds of codas, uh, why the Western world has the biases it has towards certain kinds of connections between chords and melodies. So incredibly valuable. I would recommend that people, if they have any opportunity, take some theory. You don't think you're going to use it, but it really comes in handy. So again, with a tune that I've just learned, I'm already starting to think of ways to vary it um, that fits some of those rules. Mm-hmm. So like you think about theory in terms of like what chord substitutions you can use and things like that. Uh-huh. Or... And bass lines. Yeah. I love to invent bass lines. Uh, what would a bass line sound like? Is it like on every downbeat or are you doing like eighth note bass lines or riff kind of bass lines? Or... All of the above. All of yeah. the above. <laughs> yeah. I also love bass lines. I mean, that's one of the great things about being a piano player is that you can do bass lines and other chords. You can literally do two different things with your hands. Mm -hmm. It's so great. I can't imagine how I learned to do that, but I guess I was young enough that uh, it worked. Um, So in terms of playing by ear, you know, you mentioned you played with folks who often play from sheet music. And I've noticed that as a player you know, especially for English dances where we often will open up the Barnes books or we'll get sheet music for something from a caller. And sometimes if I have the tune memorized, it's still tempting just to get it out, just to have it as a reference. Oh, yeah. But I find that if I have the tune memorized, like I could know it by heart. But if I have the music in front of me, my brain turns off in terms of thinking about chords and things like that. Mm. It's really weird. And I don't know if that's because I was a classical player and accompanist for so long, like accompanying vocalists and things that I just have that like follow the chart passive brain. I don't know, but it's really interesting. It's like I can't ignore the chords and I can ignore them, but it takes work. You Mm. know, like my brain still reads them and interprets them, even if I do something different. So I feel like I am less creative even if I know the tune the same amount, whether the music for it is in front of me or not. Hmm. Interesting. 
Well, I spend so much time looking up that I can somewhat forget the influence of the written notes. Uh-huh. Not entirely. Uh, it's all there. And a lot of what I'm doing is relative minors. It's not big changes. Yeah. Yeah. The occasional five chord maybe here and there or four chord or something. Yeah, sure. And maybe some startling stuff once in a while. But I I tend not to take big risks in the moment. Um, if you've got a loud instrument like a piano and you hit a crashing wrong chord, it, it's really painful. Yeah. How, how do you define wrong? There's a fun question. Else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Depending on the style, I mean, if you're playing some Baroque English tune and you come up with yeah. something really jarring, that's that's yeah. wrong. We all know wrong when we hear it. Yes, right? we do. <laughs> you know, it's like something that isn't our intention and also doesn't sound good, but in a way that we don't like in the moment, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> like there's sometimes when I play the wrong chord, but then I love it and I never would have thought of it. But that's not what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. That's funny. Yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds like you play quite a bit with Dave Bartley. Oh, he and is. He is the Sam Bartlett of the West Coast. Exactly. He's a very inventive, prolific, creative kind of person. What's it What's it like? What's that dynamic like for you? Oh, it's wonderful because he's so playful. He's the one who usually comes up with quotations. And, mm. you know, he just gives you the high sign and then launches into something that he hopes you know, and uh, <laughs> and you just play along. And he finds things that fit really well. He knows just how long to play them before you've sort of worn out the joke and go back to the regular tune. It's lovely. And he writes great tunes, mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of really great tunes. Mm-hmm. And he knows how to put them together into medleys that show off the strengths of both and work well for the same kind of dance. So, yeah. He's a great. He's a great guy. I imagine he's one of the people who would probably frequently be putting new tunes on your music stand and say, "Okay, let's play this." Um, he's he's generally a little more considerate than that. Oh, okay, yeah, good, good. Yeah. Uh, but there there were times when he was composing so many tunes that they would kind of, you know, we'd we'd have to wait for an occasion to use them because we couldn't do too many in a given evening. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's a terrible problem to have, isn't it? A luxury of riches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one thing we haven't talked about so far is my own compositions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I started off, well, uh, I started off with Bus Stop Reel. I just got lucky. My my first tune was one that um, that went a long way. And by accident, it turns out that Bus Stop Reel fits well on just about every instrument. Um it's a good keyboard instrument, it's a good string instrument, flute players even like it. So that's part of the reason that it um, it spread so far. It was easy for a lot of people to play. And it's been recorded a long time, a lot of times. And one thing I came up with, I'm not even sure where I got this idea, when I didn't have any ideas for a theme, was to use phone numbers. So you take your regular seven-digit phone number and translate those numbers into the notes of the scale. Uh, And for people who are listening who don't play, if you think of a scale as having eight notes in it and you give them each numbers, well, you play those numbers in a row 
And my rule is they have to be the first seven notes of the tune. That's fun. And I want to do it right now. Let's pause the podcast. I'm going to go make a tune for my <laughs> phone number. I'll be right back. Well, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> watch out for the zeros. It's never clear what to do oh, with yeah. the zeros. What do you do? I try Rest? to play them as tens to keep going in the sequence. Oh, but that makes sense. Tens are really hard to work into a medley. I have done it, but it's harder. And nines are hard. You know, how many times do you hit a nine in the, in the course of a regular melody? It's an interesting interval, isn't it? Yeah, and sometimes the first note will be a pickup if it's really, you know, if the first note is a seven, okay, most tunes do not start on the downbeat on seven, but a pickup could be seven. So I've had yeah. something like that. Anyway, I've had good luck with them. Um, and the first one I ever did was a, a waltz for Bob McQuillan's phone number. Oh, yeah. What's it called? Um, I, <laughs> I, I would have to go look it up. Um, I, I don't get a chance to play it very often. I'd have to go look that up. But anyway, it still exists. Um, very simple tune. Turns out waltzes are easier because you can have a lot of sustained notes and get over awkward intervals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah making it real out of that is tricky because they all come at eighth notes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can't play with the timing and the rhythm as much, I mm -hmm. imagine. Oh, that's a fun game. Yeah. Do you, you know Dave Weisler? Oh, yeah. Piano player from the East Coast. Dave is one of those also endless creative people. And I was at Pinewoods with him one summer and we were talking about tune smithing. And he was saying a list of a million different games that he knows of to write tunes. And mm. he was saying something similar, but you you roll a die and the number one through six is the number of the note that you choose. Oh, and then there's a way you can do it with flipping coins where heads means there's a note in a spot and tails means there's a rest. <laughs> so like if you set an interval at eighth notes, then you flip a coin for every eighth note and that decides if there's a note or a rest there, you know, Wow. so that can lead to some strange rhythms. And then, you know, you take it and then you massage it right into something that feels like music. And maybe you only get one or two phrases or motifs from that that feel good. But maybe that's enough to then write a whole tune from there. Mm -hmm. It's fun. Mm -hmm. I love your phone number game. Uh, I guess you could also spell your name or other people's names as well, because you can just convert letters into numbers that way. But there are 26 letters. Yeah, but you could go A through G, and then H would start over again. Oh, okay. So if H well, was the number jolts, one. Whatever jolts your brain into thinking about sequences of notes in a different way than you would ordinarily. Yeah. Anything is good. When you wrote Bus Stop Real, how did you write it? Did you write it on the piano? I wrote or it in my head. Were you singing? Most of my yeah. tunes I write in my head. I was sitting at the bus stop waiting to go to work. Uh-huh. And then how did you remember? Did you sing it into a recorder? Did you just keep it in your head till you got home? I think I drew five lines on a piece of paper while I was sitting there and wrote it out. Yeah. Because I, I don't carry... Uh, music paper around with me as a rule unless I'm going to a gig so I probably had to draw it it's a good thing that it's easy to draw <laughs> yeah you know five lines add some dots in there mm -hmm. yeah I've written tunes on airplanes that way just like noodling on a sheet of paper it's kind of fun you can kind of even if you don't know what the tune's going to sound like totally you can kind of look at the relationships between the notes in a different way 
and and that's fun. Like seeing the patterns visually is different than like seeing the patterns on the piano or, you know, on an instrument like guitar or fiddle where it's not like linear up and down the way that it is on the piano. Have you ever played any other instruments besides piano? I had a spell of hammer dulcimer for a while. I was a big Malcolm Dalglish fan and Bill Spence. Oh, yeah. But I realized um, that a hammer dulcimer is essentially a proto-piano. Um, it doesn't have dampers, and it has a small range. And uh, I realized uh, I missed piano. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, that didn't last very long. And trying to play contra tunes at full speed on an instrument that doesn't have a damper, you you kind of get a lot of overlap. Yeah. Do you use the pedals when you're playing for contradances? Somewhat. More in English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Or for a waltz, you know. Yeah. There's been a few times where, like, I don't know, I'd have a keyboard and my sustain pedal would randomly stop working. and <gasps> Oh, that feeling, or if you plug it in, if you turn it on while your foot's on the pedal, like if you're doing a rushed sound check and you forget, it reverses the polarity of the pedal. And I've had <gasps> times when everything was sustained unless I pushed my foot down trying to play a waltz that way. It is, it will mess with your mind. <laughs> it certainly would. It was the longest three minutes of my life. <laughs> Do you use keyboards or do you try to stick to acoustic pianos? What's your preference? I'll play anything put in front of me. Um, I don't carry a keyboard to gigs. I rely on whatever's in the hall. Um, mm. Sometimes if Dave and I are playing, he's got a keyboard that's reasonably portable, not too heavy. And if we know the piano's going to be bad, we might bring his along. But generally, and as you know, pianos vary in quality. Oh, yeah. And um, condition. And tuning. Yes. And the first thing is to try out all the notes to see which ones are duds and which ones are so out of tune they cannot be played. And so I know how to, to how, I know that I need to avoid them during the gig, which is, which is tricky. You know, when, when middle D is not playable. Yeah. And you have to make a mental note that you can't use that one. I've been there too. It's yeah. such a yeah, it's like an extra logic problem on top of all the other things you're already trying to do. Right. Especially notes on the piano where like the unison strings are out of tune, like uh, piano notes have two or three strings for each one. And so if they're out of tune with themselves on a note, it is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I once, okay, I mean, the, I, I don't know. I feel like piano players often enjoy telling piano war stories with each other. <laughs> I once played in North Carolina and uh, we were flying. So I asked them to provide a keyboard for me and they procured this keyboard that had been in someone's basement for 10 years, like untouched. And the keys stopped working as I played them. (laughs) So after I hit each key several times, it would stick down and then not come back up again. Uh Uh-huh. And so I was trying to accompany by like lifting the, like I'd play a chord and then I have to somehow lift, flick all the keys up with my hands. And so I'm like, <laughs> okay, I can't reuse the middle C. I haven't lifted that one back up yet. It was, it was like playing whack-a-mole, but <laughs> they didn't pop back up again afterwards. <laughs> oh boy. 
It was the weirdest thing. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you haven't had too many crises. Sounds like, I mean, are there a lot of pianos out there in the West Coast and in, in halls that you run into in the Northwest? Uh, Grange halls tend to be pretty good for that. We, mm-hmm. we do play a lot of Grange halls. And more and more people are, um, even halls are buying their own keyboards. And just because it's easy to store, they don't have to keep tuning them. Yeah. So there's generally something usable or we get some warning that there isn't and can make some kind of arrangements.
Are there any of your other tunes that you want to talk about or any other of your favorite tunes? How many tunes have you written? Oh, not very many. I'd say 15 to 20. Mm. Yeah. So sort of like they come out when they just pop into your head and yeah. you write them down as they come up. And it's happened a couple times that they don't turn out to be usable for Contra or English. I I can, like one that I did um, for um, Susan Amato, <clears throat> it turned out to be a rumba. Um, that was the only <laughs> thing that fit those particular combinations of notes. I mean, I think it's good to write music and just let it be what it is. Like, let it come out of your brain as it is, hmm. and then you can figure out later where it belongs. And I feel like music doesn't have to be useful. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like once once folks reach a place where they're like a semi-professional or professional musician, or you're just trying to make a body of work of some sort, you start being like, could that be a thing? Could that be a thing? And I don't know. Sometimes it's nice just to write things just for the sake of having ditties come out of your head, even if they don't all have to be tunes for mm -hmm. a purpose. And some of them can't be forced anyway. I tried yeah. to I tried to make a contra out of that rumba tune. We actually played it at Lady of the Lake with a drum set behind to, to sort of help out. And it was it was doable, but nah, it didn't want to be that. So now it's a rumba. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of us have had experiences like that where you write something and you really try hard to make it work and you're like, nah, this is going to be something else. Mm -hmm. And I don't do a lot of concerts, so there's not a lot of opportunities to use things that are, that are not obviously dance tunes. But every once in a while there is one, and it's nice to pull those things out. Or to play something that wants to go slower. Some mm -hmm. of those great you know, slinky jigs, they just want to go at 104 and only yeah. in a concert, you know, can you play that kind of stuff? 104 is kind of my favorite tempo. <laughs> I think I was just talking with this, uh, with Sam Bartlett about this. We did an interview with him a few weeks ago. I just, I don't know. I feel like every time I hear music that I like, or I'm like, oh, what is that? I want that. It's like between 96 and 104. That's just my happy place tempo wise. Okay. Do you think about tempo when you're playing? Like when you're playing for contra dances, what are your favorite tempos to play at? Well, it's not up to me. Um, it's up to what works in the dance. Um, when I first started, that probably that Frank's reel was probably at 120. I was told 120 is the standard. Always play that. And gradually things have slowed down. I generally mm -hmm. set a metronome for a 116 just to give to get it in my head yeah. and then adjust from there. But increasingly, I hear 112s um, and 108 if it's a really slinky jig. So there's getting to be more variety and definitely on the slow side. But, you know, it's whatever the dance requires or whatever the tune can handle. It's not up to me, really. How do you figure out what tempo you're going to do the potatoes at? What do you take into account? Well, for Contra... I usually always start at 116 until I watch the dance progress and see if people are having trouble and need to slow down. Uh -huh. If it's a, if it's you know a family dance or round dance that's kind of not quite a square but but very simple moves, 
I could move up to 120 or above once I see it moving. Mm-hmm. I think it's common for dances to speed up a little bit, you know, so it's fine to start. Like 116 is like on the s- slightly slow end of normal, I think, for New England or square end of normal, depending on where you are. And then just letting it creep up a little bit on its own is enough to give the dance some energy. Yeah. And at the transition, um, you know, between two tunes and a medley, that's a place where you can hop it up if you want to. Yeah. And as people learn the dance and get more fluid, sometimes you can increase the tempo as well without handicapping them. How much... uh... Do you coordinate with your bandmates in advance? Like how much of what you play, and this is specifically for Contra because I know English is a little bit different, but for Contras, how much of what you play is arranged versus made up on the fly? Well, the medleys are almost always set ahead of time. Mm-hmm. That's a complicated matter to set up a, a good medley in which one tune feeds into the other easily um, and they both fit the same kind of choreography. So we generally don't mess with those, but... Picking the medleys, uh, sometimes we'll get advance notice from a caller that I have a favorite dance that I like to do sec- you know, in the second half. Could you be looking for something that would fit this kind of a dance? And we'll actually pick that. But generally, callers like to be flexible to change the program as they see fit when they look at the hall and see who's coming. You know, at the intermission, an entire family of of beginners will show up. You know, you've got eight new beginners in the in the hall that weren't there before. They throw the program out. They start all over. And as you know, callers differ on what kind of clues they will give you um, when you're scrambling to find the next medley. Some of them just say, "Here's the card. You pick something." Some of them will try to describe it. And I had one caller in particular who said, okay, for this next one, I want billowy. And we said, <laughs> what? You know, billowy. So, <laughs> I think that would be fun is to have a little wiki where country musicians can make a running list of all the words that callers have used to phrase their requests in. Uh-huh. I think that would be really funny to just collect the wide variety of terms. Yeah. I mean, I certainly understand, like, callers are, how do you get across this abstract concept, you know? And billowy is evocative, uh, <laughs> but what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean in musical terms? Yeah, tell us where the balance and swing is, please. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say, oh, billowy, great. And can I also see the card, please? <laughs> <laughs> do you look at the cards when you're pairing uh, music and dances together? Oh, always. I will, if they let us. There are some callers that don't want you to look at cards. Why? Yeah, I don't know. They'll say, I can describe it perfectly well. You don't need to see this. And they'll actually grab them away. So, huh. okay. When you look at a card, what kind of things are you looking for? Uh, punctuation points, obviously. The balance of swing, the forward and back. Um, uh, extra balances for, for petronellas, that kind of thing. And if they've got circle followed by hay, followed by figure eight, followed by mad robin, okay, there's no punctuation at all in that section. We're going we're gonna to go very smooth. And one thing that's useful, I found, on the set list 
is to include those clues in a separate column. Like this medley has, um, you know, the second B has a big, a big thump that's really useful for dances that have a balance and swing on the second B. Um, you, you, know, you don't necessarily look at the title of a tune and know those things right off, but if you have that as a note, uh, you can just skim down the list and look for things that fit. Yeah, I mean, when we're looking at our set list picking tunes, a lot of us are kind of doing that mental work of how does this set go? Oh, it has that transition, or it has that in the B part. So making little notes for yourself about that, yeah. you know. I I often find the flip side of that is that especially when you're in a band that plays a lot and I don't want the material to feel like there's a way it always goes, it's fun to take a set that I think of as a really driving, punctuated set and try to make it groovy or smoother or like different dances bring out different parts of a tune just like different tunes bring out different parts of a dance and you know sometimes it's fun to play with that mm -hmm. so it's like you can have your cheat sheet but it doesn't mean you always have to listen to it right True. it's just there if you want it yep. but you know there's those moments you're like oh i just see something with a good b1 balance and having a way to scan seems helpful mm -hmm. uh what's the scene like out there i kind of want to see a little I don't know what it's like in your world. I want a little window into well, your world out there. It's all before times, of course. Yes, that's yeah. We we speak in present tense, yeah. But we know everything's on hold right yeah. now because of COVID. But if everything we're running, <laughs> well, Seattle's lucky in that we have two big dances a week, and they're Thursdays and Fridays. So you can have out of town bands on tour who are looking for extra gigs, and they can have two in a row. Mm -hmm. And if it's a really good band, there are people who will go to both gigs because they mm -hmm. can't get enough of that band. Um, so, it, yeah, it's a pretty lively scene. And Tacoma's got a dance um, once a month. And uh, Bellingham is, I think, every other week. I haven't checked up on their schedule. Um, Olympia's got a dance once a month. So within you know, an hour and a half, two hours drive, you could conceivably have four gigs. So it's, it's, um, and little towns in you know, like Port Angeles, way out on the peninsula would have a dance once in a while too. So you can get some scenery in with your tour. Yeah. Um, having been, you know, had the fortunate chance to play some of those Seattle dances, I was pretty impressed with like just the energy and a wide variety of ages hmm. and a lot of gusto. Yeah, especially um, on those Friday night dances, I can picture you and Noah on stage <laughs> at Finney, where the young yeah, young kids go. It's super fun, but you know the weird thing about being a traveling country musician is that you get to see the community in terms of the dancers and the callers, but you don't get to hear the other bands because you're <laughs> you're the band for the night, and so I. It's something, you know, we can't stick around for another dance because we're playing the only dance that week and then there's not a chance to hear the other bands and I wish that there was a way that we could. I guess that's what camps and festivals are for or dance weekends where there's two bands. Yes. Just where musicians really get to spend time together. Yeah. And we do have our own local weekend called Supersonic. Um, I have a feeling it may not happen this spring, depending on... Yeah. I mean, Fauci says... You know, it won't be over till the spring, so we may miss two years of it. 
but it's a very well-run yeah. weekend. And um, that draws people from all up and down the West Coast. So that's a great asset. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I had been excited because uh, Buddy System was going to play it before oh. COVID hit. And so one of these days it'll happen. But uh, that would have been cool. It sounds like a really great weekend. And yeah, I'm, yeah, do you go ahead? Do you have camps out there and things like that? Um, festivals? Like, where do you, well, where did you learn when you were trying to learn? Like, what was the, like, the milieu where you got to play along with people and meet people? There were bar, bar dances every once in a while. The Tractor Tavern, Tavern in Ballard used to have Monday night dances. In lots of you'd hear lots of jamming at places like that and get some ideas. Uh, folk life has been a big resource. You had four full days, and in the old days there was a stage devoted entirely to contra and English, all four days, and you'd hear hunt. Well, it felt like hundreds of bands, and you know absorb ideas from them. And there used to be a a weekend called Wanna Dance. There fiddle tunes is a big source of infra, ins, uh, inspiration, but it's really no place for a keyboard player mm-hmm. because you can't jam. Um, there's never a keyboard yeah. where you want it or if there is, somebody else is already playing. So I got my first Cape Breton lessons the one time I went to fiddle tunes. Um, but yeah, I haven't found it to be a good source for, for uh, new ideas for me. Who did you learn Cape Breton piano from? I will fill in that name for you soon. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> have you been to Cape Breton? I have. Uh, I went to Celtic Colors about three years ago, I guess it was, maybe four, and got to hear a steady diet of Cape Breton piano. Uh, Mac Morin is my hero there. Wow. It's the best. <laughs> and he step dances as well. It's just the best. Yeah. Like... Cape Breton piano is just the best. I, I, I'm not being very eloquent about it, but, and you know, there's a lot of acoustic pianos over there still. Yes. And just the standing behind the piano, you can watch the piano literally shake yeah. while they play it. Like the thunder and the groove and the rhythm that comes out of that thing. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, Cape Breton is an interesting case. Traditionally, it was, it was a lot of duos. It, you know, it was piano and fiddle. Maybe guitar and fiddle, but mainly piano because there were so many pianos, so many people played. And so you didn't have a third person to consider. You just had the two of you. And there was this enormous sonic acreage you got to fill. So Mm -hmm. they filled it. And this bouncy, bouncy, syncopated style grew out of, you know, there's only two of you, so better make some noise. And they do. And great bass lines and great syncopations. That's just so much fun to play. Yeah, it is. Um, what elements of Cape Breton piano do you bring into your contra playing versus, you know, do you do the whole thing or do you kind of modify it? Oh, definitely. It's very rare that I have the bandwidth. I mean, that I have the, sorry, that's a bad word, um, that there's room for full-on Cape Breton. If you've got, yeah. you know, three people in the band, you got to leave some room for somebody to do something, and it just takes <laughs> over. So, yeah, I might do a little bit of the syncopation in the right hand for 
if in a driving reel that can take it, where there's you know enough going on in the fiddle that they can stand up to it, um, I might briefly do some of that complicated bass work. But it's rare that I can do all of the above at full volume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tracy Dares is another piano player from Cape Breton that I listened to a lot when I was learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so great. And uh, Rochelle Oquin, who used to play for a lot of concertances in the States, you know, with Tidal Wave, she's got a really cool piano style because she plays for concertances, but then she's got this really great traditional Quebec sound. But then she's also done a lot of Cape Breton piano, and her family is Acadian. Mm. Um, I would love to have her on the podcast one of these days. Mm-hmm. I have a a sweet spot for piano players. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine why.
<laughs> and, uh, you know, like, did you spend much time with Bob McQuillan when you were learning, you know, with him being such an influence on you? Did you get to? I listened to his recordings and he came out for Folk Life, seems like every year. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. So, and he actually, he actually wrote me a jig, as I remember. I hadn't had a, many occasions to use it. Um, but yeah, I felt I was very privileged to be one of those people that he wrote a tune for. Yeah, that is a privilege. That's really cool. What do you think he would think about how people play now? <laughs> I know that's such a loaded question. Why did I even ask you that question? But I'm curious. <laughs> well, he was always, well, no, he wasn't always diplomatic. But <laughs> <laughs> he, he thought there was room for new ideas, sort of. But he didn't have any time for them himself. He would never alter his playing because he knew what worked and he did that thing. Nobody's yeah, change it. everybody's got their thing and he had his thing, but it didn't mean that no one should innovate or yeah. change or have their own personality. Sure. You know. Uh, where do you think that contra music is headed? Like, how have you seen it change? You've been playing since the mid 80s. Yes. What are some of the changes that you've seen? Greater variety. Uh, one of the newer things I'm seeing is quarter note tunes. And, well, we always used to use marches for contras. Um, and they got, they were often very stodgy. Um, they had, uh, they sounded Scottish even if they didn't mean to be Scottish. Um, and people seem to be kind of bored with them. But now with things like uh, Tom Kreskel's, we're seeing quarter note tunes that are really popular, um, that that work well as long as you don't play them too fast, um, and I'm seeing more of more quarter tunes, quarter note tunes being written. Uh, should we explain that for <laughs> for the listeners who don't necessarily know the difference? They basically have half the notes at yeah, the same tempo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tom Kreskel's, uh, I think, it was written by Emily Troll and Amelia Mason. Mm -hmm. Of Anna and Emma, but it was recorded by Elixir, and I think there's an English dance that yeah. uses that. Sapphire so you, Yeah, so you can find we could link to a few recordings of Tom Kreskel's in the podcast notes, sure, so that people could hear a little yeah. bit of it. But I think that inspired people, well, like Dave Bartley, to write more quarter note tunes, um, and they they give lots of room for slinkiness, for you know, they leave more space for a lot of things to happen stylistically. So that's that seems new to me. And not quotations, but borrowings from other genre. Um, you know, taking jazz standards and turning them into contras, um, mm -hmm. show tunes, whatever. Um, I, I see a lot of freedom these days. But one thing I wonder about uh, in the pandemic, when we get back to dancing, I think people will want to hear something from their past that, that they recognize, that they feel comfortable with. There, there may not be as much innovation for a while because people will be just so busy regaining ground, 
getting used to the scene again, getting getting used to um, being in crowds, and you know it'll set us back a little bit. Yeah, maybe that's. We don't even have to think of it as a setback as much as like a reconnecting mm-hmm. with our roots. I mean, some of these glorious tunes that are so common that a lot of musicians don't even play them in their bands. Like they're the kind that you hear a, a mega band or an open band play. But I miss those tunes the most. And it's partly those tunes. And it's also partly just the sound of a whole bunch of people playing together. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it's going to be so great. And, you know, as much as I've loved interesting obscure rare quirky tunes i think it's these great classic tunes that i miss the most they're like old friends mm-hmm. i'm i'm seeing a trend toward bringing them back little by little and maybe not playing them the same way uh finding something different in them but there was the reason that those tunes lasted so long and they should be they should be appreciated for their their longevity and their um adaptability yeah as should we i guess <laughs> <laughs> like uh, any country musicians who come back to this you know it, it, the whole tradition when i say we i don't mean like you and i i mean like the tradition as a whole it's you know made it a few hundred years and there's a lot of roots there mm-hmm. we just gotta keep them going we have a lot to draw on to bring all this back but you know there's always a question of like what is innovation that's um, coming out of inspiration. And then what is innovation just for the sake of feeling like we need to be different? You know, and and uh, you're kind of nodding your head from side to side in a kind of hmm yeah. <laughs> sort, of, sort of motion. Definitely both, but again, until you try it, you don't know if you're just, you're just being silly for the sake of silly or whether you've come up with something really good. And there's nothing like trying it in front of a room full of dancers to see whether it works or not. Oh, yeah, that's right. What have been some of your favorite moments playing on stage for dances? Oh, gosh. Or some of your favorite places to play or things like that. I'm not sure I can come up with single favorite places. There have been events, um, you know, weekends in general and weeks, like playing Heydays, for example, in California. That's mm-hmm. one, of, one of the best gigs. A whole week of, of playing high-quality English music and having mm. very experienced dancers out there who don't need, to, don't need any coddling. They know exactly what they're doing. In fact, they can do they can do things from memory. English dances from memory. You don't see that very often. Yeah, it's it's a great feeling because it's like for us, that's like the equivalent of not reading sheet music. <laughs> you know, like it's when you're trying to remember how the dance goes, it's hard to get in the dance. But when you know the dance by heart, then you can really interact with it and play with it, just like you can play with a tune that you know by heart, and you can like see all different sides of it. Mm-hmm. It's such a cool feeling yeah. playing for dancers who already know the dance. That sounds really blissful. That sounds like a blissful week. I want to go. <laughs> oh, yeah. They keep changing the location. I haven't been to the new one. 
I'm, I hope it's just as good as the old one. Do you play at Folklife? Uh, if I'm invited, sure. Yeah. yeah. What's that like being on that stage? <laughs> it's crazy. Um, you're very limited. You have to be, you know, pouncing from the back of the stage as soon as the other band gets off. You've got yeah. a very slow turnaround, a very quick turnaround time. Um, you don't have time to talk to the sound person and say, oh, I'd like a little more of this and a little more of that. And could we move this? No, sit down, play. It goes really fast. But you've got 500 people screaming at you if they like you. That's very nice. Yeah, it's a cool feeling. You know, any of these big festivals like this, like this, or NEFA, or the Flurry, or Falcon Ridge, or, you know, there's some in the Midwest that I haven't been to, but that it's an unusual thing to like have to get on stage in 10 minutes and sound check really fast and then play for all these people where you're not worried about the nuances of how you connect with them in the same way. But it's exhilarating. Yeah. It's really fun. It's just a whole other animal, yeah. right? And then you get up and the caller is also dealing with the different crowd and maybe the caller might be nervous or whatever. And you just get up and you go. That's it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's really fun. Watching that many people move together in time. It's just one of my favorite feelings. Yeah. And folk life may be different from some of these other festivals in that it's a, a free event. You've got people who are not dancers who wander into the hall and yeah. think, oh, and they, they just somehow get pulled into the dance. Someone says, you can do this. And you're watching, <laughs> you're watching 500 people with maybe 50 of them really flailing, but they're having a good time and they're not sure, they're not quite sure how they got there, but they're having a good time. That's so special. The chance that like, just people could come in from outside and not know anything about dancing and get exposed to it or try it. It's a really cool resource. Mm -hmm. Do you think about tradition much and like where the tradition is going and um, where either like community of contra dance is going or the music itself or you think it'll be around for a long time? Well, I worry that because of the pandemic, people are going to find other things to do and get mm -hmm. involved in them and maybe not come back. So I think there's going to be some rebuilding that has to go on. Mm -hmm. But I've, I'm old enough to have seen young people, you know, get old like me <laughs> and not be replaced for a while. And then all of a sudden be replaced by a really vibrant young community. If those people come back, we're fine. Um, if for some reason they find something more fun to do and that's the cool place to be, well, we're going to, we're going to have to rebuild again. So I do, con I'm concerned about that. Yeah. Things wax and wane for sure. And it might take us a little time to come back, but there are a lot of people who are impatiently chomping at the bit to be able to concha dance. And so you know, hopefully most of the communities have critical mass. It might take a while for that full buzz to come back of like touring bands, like touring bands might not be a thing for a while, mm -hmm. right? It might be more local to start with. Who knows? I feel like we're all on this roller coaster ride together. We don't necessarily know how or when it's going to end, but we all know that somehow it will somehow it'll something will change 
we just started to know what that looks like, yeah. right? We had one huge contra dance live in a hall before things clamped down again. One. Oh, really? Recently? Yeah. After everybody got vaccinated before the Delta yes. variant was widespread. What was that like? Oh, people were ecstatic. They were just they were just jumping up and down. Countercurrent played. Susan Michaels called. Oh, oh lovely people. Yeah. High energy people. Countercurrent is Brian Lindsay and Alex Sturbaum. Yes. They're a lot of fun. Yeah. Again, to show you what a duo can do. When they both know what they're doing and they know each other, they don't need a third person. Just like Buddy's system doesn't need a third person. Do you like playing in duos? Um, I've gotten kind of spoiled with trios um, yeah. that give more color. And there are times when I can actually yeah. drop out. And yeah. like Dave Bartley and I kind of have an, an arrangement that um, with our trios that if it's a regular contra, he'll play mando, citern, whatever, and I'll play piano. If it's a square, I play bass line and he plays guitar. Ah. Uh, and that's really fun so when you're playing just bass line. You can, yeah. yeah. You really get creative. So will you literally just play with your left hand in that case? I might double. I might double the yeah. octaves with my right. That's fun. It is. <laughs> yeah. And let him crank out the rhythm for a while. Yeah. That's great. Well, is there anything else you'd like to add? I think that's it. Well, it's been really wonderful to speak with you and to get to hear a little bit more about your musical life. It's been really great. Thank you so much. Mm, thanks for inviting me. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to ContraPulse. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and is produced by Ben Williams. Thanks to Great Meta Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jane Orzakowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit contrapulse.cdss.org for more info. Happy dancing!